Hello, and welcome to Found, TechCrunch's podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups from the folks that build them. I'm here today, as always, with the lovely... Dominic Midori Davis. And today, we're both excited about the episode, but also excited about TechCrunch Disrupt, which is actually coming up. And you, dear listeners, can save up to $600 when you buy your pass now through August 11th and save 15% on top of that with promo code FOUND. You can get more information if you visit techcrunch.com slash disrupt. And we would also like to thank Sean T. Dub on Apple Podcasts for the review. Leaving us a rating and review really helps us get discovered by more listeners, and it just really makes us feel good. So while we have you, it's a good idea to go leave one for us, if you haven't already. We read them all the time, and they really do mean a lot. Cheers, cheers, Sean T. Dub. Thanks for the nice review. And now... Thinking about today's episode, we're talking with Mandy Price from Canaries, which is a startup that provides tools that organizations need to accurately track DEI metrics and create and meet their long-term inclusion goals. And here's our conversation with Mandy. Hey, Mandy, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well, hanging in there. This humidity doesn't seem to let up in New York, but hey, it's the summer in New York. What can you expect? Well, I would prefer New York summer to Texas summer any day, so. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I can only imagine. (laughs) Well, and a little bit of a funner subject. I'm excited to have you on the show today. And I think what might make the most sense to get started is maybe if you want to start by telling us a little bit about Canaries. Sure. Canaries is a diversity, equity, and inclusion technology platform which is different than the way people usually think around diversity, equity, inclusion. Usually it's really thought of from a consultative or a training perspective. But at Canaries, we believe that everyone should have an equal opportunity to succeed in the workplace, regardless of their background. And we really believe that data is really key to ensuring that organizations can take a systemic approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we started the company back in 2018, really with the idea of how do we help organizations communicate better with their employees. We saw a breakdown in communication even at well-meaning companies and wanted to solve this. We knew that sometimes employees were afraid to express their concerns because of fears of retaliation. And we really thought that data and our technology platform could come in and really help bridge that gap. So me and my co-founders had shared a lot of the same experiences and challenges in the workplace, a lot of the challenges that many other underrepresented groups faced. And so we were really excited to build something that we thought could really drive that change. Mm-hmm. And you just touched on it a little bit at the end of that answer, but want to dive into that a little bit further. What gave you the idea to start the company to begin with? So I had, had dealt with a lot of different challenges, not even in the workplace, but kind of starting when I was a student at University of Texas at Austin. When I was a student there, I had a great experience, but like most kind of challenges that we see within our country, there were some racial incidences that happened on campus. And so while I was a student there, the MLK statute was egged several times. And so after several of these incidents that happened on campus, the president of the university put in place a racial respect and fairness task force. And I was one of the students appointed. And that was the first time I really delved into the foray of really addressing diversity, equity, inclusion, thinking around how do organizations start to build workplaces, or obviously that's an academic institution, but help to create a sense of belonging amongst their population. And so we started to look at things around the systems, the policies, the practices of the university, and made a lot of recommendations on things that we thought the university could do to create an inclusive workplace. 
Our work ultimately led to the creation of the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement at UT Austin. And then when I went on to Harvard Law School, I did work at the Harvard Civil Rights Project. And that's where I continued to kind of look at things from a systemic approach and understand how do we help to ensure that the barriers that people face are able to be dismantled? And how do organizations help to create inclusive workplaces? That's kind of what first started to delve and drive my desire around research, around data, around really understanding the structures and the policies organizations needed to put into place. And so when I started practicing law, I was on my law firm's diversity committee and also the women's task force and saw that even though the organization was really well-intentioned, that they didn't have the data and the information they needed to drive a true systemic change within the organization. That's when I decided to resign from the partnership of my law firm to start Canaries. It was those incidences around really understanding the research and a lot of the data that could be used to drive, but it was also some of the experiences that I had as far as being asked if I got into Harvard legitimately or, you know, being called the diverse partner by a colleague in a meeting. It was all of those experiences that really led me to know that there was a, a better way that organizations could go to start to tackle these problems. So you have this DEI product. What was it like pitching that to investors who they themselves are, I don't know, kind of weird on diversity? What was that like? And what are some things that they said to you? Well, you know, we've really seen the pendulum swing, I feel like, over these five years, especially with our conversations with investors, as we start to think around the very beginning days when we were trying to launch the product and create the MVP, a lot of investors we talked to didn't even think it was a problem. I remember investors saying, you really think that women and people of color and different groups have a different experience in the workplace. So it was trying to prove the problem existed. As we started, you know, after George Floyd and started to raise our seed round, I think organizations really understood the problem because we started to see a lot of pledges around corporate diversity initiatives. So the conversations were different, but there was still a reluctance and a kind of convincing around, do you really think organizations are serious about this? So we encountered a lot of those discussions. And then with our Series A round, you know, the conversations were again, because we started to see the pendulum swing again, was I don't know that organizations are going to keep investing in this. And as we start to think around a recession, we think these are going to be the first things that are going to be cut. It has continued to be a challenge for us uh, as we talk with investors. I think it's always the issues that we're addressing is a little bit different, but absolutely, I think there was at least a recognition now that there is a, a problem. There is a sense of there are disparities in the workplace and how do organizations start to tackle those. But I think some of the questions still remain around organizations' resolve to really address these issues head on. Have you seen others or um, have you seen organizations stop investing in DEI as a space? Like I'm assuming like others in your market, like other competitors, have you seen businesses pull back from them? Is that something they're actually doing? After George Floyd, we saw a lot of organizations get into the DEI space. We saw companies like ours that were focused from the beginning on how do we help create real 
measurement benchmarking data around not just diversity, but equity, inclusion, and belonging. Because what we saw is most organizations, if they said they were using data for their DEI, they were still just measuring diversity, just counting representation, where we are really focused on how do we ensure that we're looking at equity, inclusion, belonging? How are we taking evidence in science-based approaches as we think around these issues? And we saw a lot of new companies start. And we saw a lot of traditional organizations, those traditional human capital management or HRIS systems, start to add diversity, equity, inclusion products, but they weren't really embedded into measuring these components that we talked about. They still were really focused on that kind of representation and just measuring diversity. So as we've seen the pendulum swing, we have seen some of those organizations kind of change the way they talk around DEI, change the way they continue to invest and building out these product suites. But I think that there are organizations like Canaries that were very rooted from the beginning and creating a true measurement around these. And we see those organizations continue to move forward. Thinking about something you mentioned in one of those answers, kind of of how the way the broader conversation around the DEI space has changed so much since you guys started the company in both good and bad ways. How do you feel you guys are able to kind of navigate some of those changes in like public discourse and sort of public feeling around some of these initiatives that we have seen in the last five years? I think what we see is that DEI has become very politicized, but that is something that is not what we see when we talk around to HR and DEI leaders, because Mm -hmm. the research is so strong around DEI and the effects that it has on businesses and the importance of creating that environment of inclusion and belonging for employees. I think the challenge is, right, we know politicians are going to be politicians and they're going to try to create wedge issues and do certain elements of, of kind of the culture wars. But DEI and HR practitioners, when we're talking to chief people officers, they understand the importance of investing in people creating a work environment where everyone can thrive no matter their background. And so I think the real challenge is how do we ensure that people really understand what we mean when we talk around DEI because of the way the politicians have kind of changed the meaning of it and kind of skewed it in a way to fit the narratives that they want around their political actions. Mm hmm. And something else that's sort of come with the last five years that you mentioned as well is there have been other companies that have emerged looking to tackle different issues in the DI space as well. And I'm curious, as the field gets more crowded or as companies look to sort of home grow their own maybe initiatives and programs, how do you guys think about continuing to stand out from the pack and like continuing to sort of break through some of that noise as more people get involved in the space? Well, I still think a lot of people in this space are measuring diversity. They may be measuring different elements of diversity, looking at it from a talent acquisition perspective, looking at it around pipeline and seeing how talent is moving through the organization. And we've always been focused on how do we ensure that organizations really have the data that they need to drive their strategy. So we've really have always been focused on helping to create that framework because what we see is a lot of organizations don't even know what to measure outside of diversity. When you start to say, how are you measuring inclusion, equity, belonging? It's kind of a, I don't know, (laughs) you know, that the the idea is just looking at the bodies and measuring. I, I would say many organizations even struggle to measure outside of gender and race. 
And so what we do is really help them understand and to create those frameworks and that measurement around how do we look at our workforce and understand the support systems that they need to have in place. So we do a lot of work around helping them to create self-ID campaigns to look at issues around disability, neurodiversity, LGBT, religion, caregiver status. So they really understand the challenges that their employees are facing and are able to provide those support systems. So when we start to think around, for example, one of our clients very early on in the pandemic, we were able to flag and highlight some mental health and burnout issues. Now, obviously, over the past, I would say maybe 18 months, maybe even 24 months, what we've seen around mental health and burnout globally, you know, it just continues to increase. We were able to flag that two years ago for them around the support systems they needed to put in place for their employees because of the measurements that we had, because of the questions and the analytics that we were able to show that the employees really needed support. And so they were able to offer additional mental health benefits as they started to look at their benefit plans. They were able to do training with their managers and other HR leaders to start to look for signs of burnout. And so that then their managers were equipped to understand how to support those employees. And so those are the types of things when we say we're not just measuring bodies, we're really helping the organization to better understand their workforce and to ensure they have the support systems in place for them. I read that you partnered with Project Mockingbird to help companies navigate this time since the Supreme Court overturns affirmative action. And so I'm really interested to know how you see that overturn impacting businesses and, you know, even, I guess, universities, but for you, businesses and how they approach DEI these days. We have partnered with Project Mockingbird as well as Ford Harrison, which is a large national labor and employment law firm, to provide resources and guidance to organizations to navigate the implications to the workplace. Although the ruling dealt specifically with the higher education context, we know that, you know, we can kind of judge from how the ruling was written that implications that are going to extend beyond academia into the workplace. So we are working with organizations to really understand from a legal perspective, any type of race conscious initiatives. Now, again, this is kind of where politics and some of the things you hear around DIB, hiring, promotion, firing based off race has been illegal for decades. So that is not something that organizations have been able to do. But we do know that there are certain programs that may be put in place around scholarships, around mentorship programs based off of underrepresented groups and thinking of how do we need to think around those programs? Same thing as we talk around supplier diversity and certain goals and targets that may be put in place for women-owned businesses or minority-owned business. And how do we structure those to ensure that they will are within the bounds of the law, given kind of the legal shift that we saw around race consciousness in the most recent ruling? And so we are working with Ford Harrison to provide that legal guidance and Project Mockingbird to help organizations as they talk around diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, because we've seen a huge shift in organizations because of how politicized DEI has become to start to refer to their programs around inclusion and belonging so that it people really understand truly what's at the heart of what the organizations are trying to do. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, Mandy shares more about how she went from being a partner at a law firm to becoming an entrepreneur and what's coming down the pike for Canaries. Kind of switching gears a little bit. I've also read that you never really wanted to be a founder. And so I'm really curious to know, is there something about running a business that kind of threw you off or like you weren't expecting when you first started this journey of entrepreneurship? 
I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. So I meet other founders and they're like, this is what I always wanted to do. I went to school to be a lawyer. And so what I always wanted to do was to advocate for individuals to help make society better. I grew up watching Eyes on the Prize with my parents and I saw lawyers as folks that helped to make society better. And so, you know, over time, as I continued to work in the field of law, I loved it, but I started to see the effect that technology was able to have on society and create widespread change. And so when I started to see, especially, I know I talked about kind of being on the diversity committee in the Women's Task Force, I also served as the head of the Black ERG group and saw the challenges that individuals had when it came to really expressing the difficulties they were having in the workplace. I thought technology was really that bridge and that gap that could help them communicate without that fear of retaliation. You know, the journey to be a founder, I'm really excited about it because I still feel that I'm doing ultimately what I've always wanted to do, which is how do we help advocate for people? How do we bring change in society? And how do we help to create better workplaces? One of the things that I know, sometimes people feel that, especially if you're taking creating a technology company, is that you have to have a technology background. But I think to be a founder and to be an entrepreneur, you have to have a lot of skills. Not only do you have to have that tenacity and grit, but you have to be a learner. You know, you have to love to learn new things. You know, I really think that my background in law was very helpful because I knew so much around board governance and kind of corporate governance, but also a lot of things because I was a deal lawyer around project management and really understanding all the things that it takes to run a business. So when you're starting to think around IP issues and when you're starting to think around marketing, I also had a finance background from business school. So there's just so much that you have to learn as an entrepreneur. So I would just encourage folks that are interested in pursuing that field, do not be scared if you don't have all the kind of technology background, because no matter what, as an entrepreneur, you're going to be learning. You're going to be learning about marketing and sales and social media. When I first started, I had no idea what the difference between a back end versus a front end versus a UX, you know, all these kinds of different engineers and you know, those are just things that I had to learn and make myself very fluent in. And so I think it's a lifelong skill of learning. Mm -hmm. And sort of thinking about switching from being a lawyer to an entrepreneur, what was the journey like for you personally? Those are obviously very different jobs. They require very different hours, time, sort of a different approach. How has this been like for you personally switching from very different career fields? Well, lawyers are risk adverse. So you're <laughs> every day you go and thinking around how do we color within the lines? How do we ensure that we are doing everything that is within the legal framework? And entrepreneurs are innovators and are thinking of not how do we ensure that we're doing things exactly the way they may have been done before or within the guidelines, but how do we think around different ways that we can do things? For me, it's been very rewarding. I love to be around other entrepreneurs and the kind of innovation that drives from that. But it was a challenge in the beginning, right, to go from that thinking of risk and not wanting to really think outside the box to really understanding we have to always be thinking outside of the box around how do we innovate our product? Mm -hmm. How do we think around the needs of our clients and ensure that we are being innovative in the product solutions that we're offering them? It's been a great journey from that standpoint, but there's been challenges as well. You know, obviously going from having a stable paycheck as a partner at a law firm for those first few years where 
we made nothing was a challenge. But I think that is something that is also part of the founder journey of really having to bootstrap your business and grow it. I, I think everything that we've had from the business, even the challenges, I look at them as learning experiences. I know there's a saying around fail fast. We feel that the quicker we can make mistakes and learn from them, the better. And so, you know, I have a pretty positive outlook on life overall. How big is your company now? We have close to 40 employees. With our Series A round, we brought on a lot of individuals onto our leadership team. So brought in a VP of sales, a VP of customer success, and really started to scale out our operations. Really, really excited about the growth we've been able to achieve over the past few years. And kind of following up on that, how would you describe your leadership style and how do you make sure that company culture is something that is kind of positive for all the employees that work for you? So I think your leadership style has to change as your company changes. You know, and I think of the very early days when there was three of us, <laughs> you know, it was very different than now with our team, the size that it is, you know, in the very beginning, it was, uh, we were doing everything, you know, we're making the social media copies ourselves, we're making all the marketing materials, all the sales calls. And so you have to be very hands-on. And then as our business has continued to grow, it's around how do we create the policies, the processes in place to scale the business? Because at this point, if I'm doing everything, we've done something wrong that we should be in a place where the organization can operate without me having to be involved in every single area. And so it's around how do we ensure that we have those subject experts running those various work streams and creating the processes that will allow the organization to operate even if they're not in place. I think, you know, in the early days, it's much more you doing it yourself. As time goes, it's how do we recruit the skills and the talent and those experts into the organization that we need to grow and scale. And I think as we start to look at our customers as well, right, we work with large enterprises as well as mid-market companies and their needs, right, we've seen them change as well. Earlier on, we worked with some large nonprofits and some mid-markets, a couple of enterprises. But as we started to work with more enterprises, we've had to change the profile of kind of who we're hiring on the customer success front as well. So I think it's always an evolution. I think this goes back to the continuous learning and continuous adjustments that any business is going to have to have. But how do you foster your own DEI workplace culture? But how do you implement your own DEI policies for your employees? From the beginning, we've We've had DI experts on our team, IO psychologists. And so our team is equipped with individuals that have those backgrounds. So it's something that's front and center that we always think about. So as we start to think around the policies that we have in place, from the very early stages, we've always had healthcare plans. We've always thought around how do we support our employees? We've always had an emphasis on mental health and having mental health days. Our firm has unlimited time off. We do things to uh, we're a remote only team. And so we used to be in the office before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, like many organizations, we started to hire throughout the country. So our team is very dispersed now. We do a lot of things to ensure that we are helping to continue to create that culture and that environment, even though we're located everywhere. And so we do things like yesterday, there was coffee chat. I'm saying it wrong. Coffee chat Monday, <laughs> where Folks just get on in the beginning of the month and kind of talk around just, you know, trying to recreate that water cooler talk. We do social events. 
still, I know, you know, earlier on the pandemic, but we continue to do social events. We have channels on Teams where people talk around their kids and their pets. We try to ensure that we are doing everything we can to support our colleagues and our employees. So we do things around mental health and wellness. Not only, I was talking about mental health and wellness days off, but we have meditations and we'll have meetings where we meditations and really talk around mental health and wellness. And so our goals are, and everything we do is around, how do we ensure that the same things that we are talking to our clients about, that we embed those into our policies as well. You know, one of the things that's really important is ensuring that our workplace is accessible for everyone. So that if you have a disability, if you have certain challenges, you don't meet every single requirement in our job descriptions, we still encourage you to apply because we know that there are still things that you can offer. And we'd like to talk to you about that around the things that you think you can offer to the organization as well. As we think around the policies and the practices that we embed within our organization are those same things that we're talking to our clients around those research-based policies and practices. One of the things for me as a leader that I try to do is I ensure that I don't email people on the weekends unless it's truly an emergency. I know that coming from a leader, anyone that is in the management of the organization, if you receive an email from them, you feel compelled to respond. So that's something that we talk about as a leadership team, that if something's not an emergency, let's not email people on Saturday or Sunday and create that space where people really do feel like they have downtime. And one last question regarding the hiring, just because I know, especially in the SaaS space, which you guys are not really in, but there's always the question of when do you hire the first like outside sales head that's not no more like founder-led sales. So I'm always curious, like, when did you decide it was the right time to start bringing on more formal sort of sales leads for the company? Yeah, so we are a SaaS company. So we hired our first sales, our account executive, maybe three years ago. And we've continued to build out that team. We have a number of account executives. Same thing as we look at SDRs, BDRs, and then a VP of sales as well. I think for us, the transition over to when we moved from founder-led sales to having a sales team was really as we started to see our growth start to really scale. When it came to the point of we weren't just having a handful of customers, we weren't having just a handful of inbound leads, that's when we knew we needed to transition over and start to have an experienced sales team. And sort of thinking about how much you guys have grown at this point, how do you think about scaling from here, knowing you raised the Series A earlier this year, you guys are definitely laying the right foundation. Where does the growth go from here? We, up until this point, had really relied on organic growth and inbound sales. So with the Series A, that's when we hired our first SDR. And that's when we started to really have that product marketing arm around retargeting and really having that outbound sales motion. As we think around where do we go from here, we're continuing to grow out our platform as we think of DEI from a global perspective. We know DEI issues are not U.S. issues. They're global issues. They're people issues around ensuring that anyone, no matter their background, is having the same opportunities in the workplace. So a lot of the things we're doing is kind of building out those components as we start to think around the needs of our clients from a global perspective. And something I'm always curious about, especially for founders like yourself is you're building a business that isn't just important in the sense of helping a company's workflow or sort of fixing an issue to make it more efficient in a manufacturing process. 
you're tackling a real issue that affects real people. And it's sort of, I don't want to say a heavier problem, but definitely one that carries more weight. And I'm curious, how do you think about your job and helping to push the company forward? Does that weigh on you that this is a much bigger issue to solve than you could be tackling if you were doing something else? So I will say that we see a lot of turnover with DEIB professionals or people in the industry because it is such a weighty issue, because it is something that does start to affect you mentally and think around the challenges and and the burnout that those individuals have. I know within our team, we see everyone on our in our organization that is working with Canaries is deeply committed to these issues, and that's why they're working there. So when we start to see the different things that we may see in society, not only kind of scrutinizing DEIB, but also when we start to think around the challenges that we see on the, just in the news, not not around DEIB, but challenges that employees may be facing, societal issues that we see, it starts to really weigh people down. And so that is one of the things that we really keep an eye out and try to create that safe space in that environment to allow our employees to really talk around the challenges that they may be feeling around continuing to advocate for these issues, the challenges that certain workplaces may be having as they continue to advocate for these issues as well. But I don't get discouraged by it because I feel that it's part of any change. DEIB is change management work. And so in order to have transformation and change management, it's going to take time. We're going to see setbacks, but we're also going to see things progress forward. What I try to do is really think around the long-term mission and goal that we're trying to create and use that to really be the guiding force. Now, does your product only work with U.S. companies right now? and Or like, is there any ambition to scale it to like maybe the U.K. and France where there's also DEI problems? So we have continued to work with global companies. So a lot of the organizations we work, we only really market in the U.S., but we work with global companies. So we've done assessments throughout the EU. We've done assessments in Latin America. We've done a little bit in Asia, but it really does depend on which countries we're talking about, where we have the kind of demographic mapping and things like that that we've done within those regions, and as well as the data that we've collected to help really have those substantial benchmarks there. But yes, we do work and have capacity outside of the U.S. What's it been like getting data in the EU regarding DEI? Our team, we have a team of data scientists. We also have experts around data, privacy, cybersecurity. And so we are up to speed and abreast on GDPR. You know, obviously with my legal background, we have a lot of legal counsel that we work with as well. So it has not been a challenge for us because we've had the experts that we need to have in place to really ensure that we're complying with the legal and regulatory landscape there. Mm -hmm. And sort of going off that feeling of expansion, thinking toward the future, what's in store for you guys? What are you looking forward to for the next couple of years for Canaries? A lot of our growth and expansions is around moving our assessments from a global perspective. As we start to look at the global economy, the fact that organizations don't just operate in one region, that it is a global economy that we operate in, and that we know that the ideas that certain groups are being marginalized or experiencing the workforce differently is not a U.S. issue. 
So our work with our company partners is around how do we ensure that they can create the support systems, create that environment of inclusion and belonging throughout their entire organization, not just the U.S. That's one of the things that we've really been focused on with our Series A round. And as we start to look at our product roadmap is to really grow and scale our technology for every company in the world. Like I said, we've we've already done that through the EU and much of Latin America. But as we start to literally expand, our goal is to truly have a global product. <laughs> well, perfect. Well, this has been a pleasure. So thank you so much, Mandy, for coming on. Thank you so much. It's been so great talking with both of you. And that was our conversation with Mandy. Dom, what did you think? I thought it was really cool. What about you? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I mean, you hear so much about companies trying to implement DEI, and especially now in the last year, unfortunately, hearing of companies doing layoffs and cutting those departments. It was interesting to chat with a company that's been building in the space over the last five years because the conversations around company DEI and sort of how employers are thinking about it have changed so rapidly in the last five years that it was just cool to hear about how they've sort of like navigated the ebbs and flows. I know. I also really like to hear that her definition of DEI was pretty expansive and it wasn't just focused on race and gender, but that it was more, um, it encompassed so much more because I mean, DEI is so much more than just race and gender. Mm -hmm. No, you're so right. And I definitely know you do see stuff online, especially on Twitter and stuff when things about DEI come out and they don't include, say, people with disabilities or people from the LGBTQ community and people are like, well, are you really looking at actual diversity? Or are you looking at like a small slice? Which I know, of course, these issues are hard to solve regardless. So companies are, I would like to say doing what they can, but I don't know if that's true for a lot of them. But it's just interesting to hear them kind of take that more holistic view. But at the same time, knowing that some of that stuff is self-identification, which because it would have to be, that always gets into the question of like, are companies really going to get a real answer if people have to kind of put this information out about themselves, especially I know with um, people with disabilities, some of them, people don't always want to share if they don't feel like it's relevant to like what they're doing with work. I know. And that just makes it harder to, I guess, track and provide the things that people need in order to progress, like in companies. Like, I mean, I even have this problem in terms of tracking how much funding goes to certain communities because it's all like self-identification. And people sometimes, you know, they don't really want to self-identify for all the reasons that you kind of said. So, but what I found to be really, really interesting is the conversation. I would really like to know, like for a company like hers and others, and I kind of asked her this, are these corporations that use these products, are are they backing away from DEI? Or are they further embracing it? Because we've been hearing the things that, you know, a lot of the companies that made promises, they've kind of stepped back. But I would really like to know, or I would like a firsthand account of, you know, someone saying like, yes, you know, this place was using my product and now they're not anymore. And I don't know, putting more narratives onto that feeling that a lot of people have that corporations aren't holding to their promises. Definitely, because it definitely seems like it's been one of those areas where it's like we've seen a lot of talk. We haven't seen as much action. But she mentioned that the company's been growing. I thought it was interesting. We should have dived into this a little bit more. But she kind of mentioned casually that like for the first few years, like they didn't really do much outreach because they got so much inbound interest, which I thought was really interesting for something like this, because it seems like many companies, as much as you'd want them to kind of want to improve on DEI just on their own. It seems like a lot of companies only do it when they feel backed into a corner. So the fact that they had so much inbound interest definitely says something, like a positive, that maybe there are more companies out there trying to implement this kind of stuff than my cynical 
brain thought. I, and I thought it was like so funny when she said that VCs didn't even think that there was bigotry in the workplace because I'm like, how unreal is that thought? <laughs> I'm like, have you never like read a book? Like, of course there's bigotry in the workplace. What? What does that mean? No, I know. This is like, feels like one of those classic examples where it's like VCs should learn to just say no <laughs> or that they're not interested. Like, I feel like they're always like, oh, I have to have a reason. And then they say something like that and it's like, okay, well now you look ignorant now, so yeah. <laughs> I would have just said no if I were you yeah it's like you made it worse now I have more questions for you I know like, I know it feels similar to when we talked with Sparkfly just about the sense where it's so interesting when you have these companies that VCs are like I don't even know if this company needs to exist and then it's like oh well we didn't have to hire a salesperson for years because we got so much inbound interest from customers and it's just like that disconnect is so interesting to me I'm like, what are you, what are they looking at? What is, like, I, I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. It's interesting that this is taking a data approach, but isn't focused on hiring, which I also thought was interesting. And I wish we had dived into that just a little bit more with her, because I am curious if you were a customer and say you used Canaries to sort of track and take note of kind of what the metrics looked like for your own company. Like if you weren't going to start using that in potentially future hires, like I'm just, I wish there was more information about kind of like, what companies could then like use that information for yeah, and sort of like how they could like implement that to make things better. If hiring isn't the goal, like what are the other ways companies can help foster these better communities using the data is something I wish I knew like a little more about. Yeah, that's something that I was thinking about during the interview in terms of trying to see how companies use the data, because I guess if not for hiring, then maybe retention. But yeah, yeah, we should <laughs> we should have gone deeper. Yeah, I think uh. that was like my one big question after as I was just like, hmm, well, I wonder how, like, this, like, looks in practice then. Yeah. But. Yeah, that was definitely my my big, okay, so we, okay, so we both had the same thoughts. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, I love how we spoke about, we had, like, a timely news peg in terms of touching on the overturn of affirmative action. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting how she said that this probably will have ramifications in the business world, which... Yeah. Which, of course, you know, a lot of times tech likes to pretend that it's outside of politics and all these things. But it further shows how just intertwined, you know, politics, business and money have become in the U.S. And so I'm really now interested to see how this impacts corporations and kind of, I guess, how does tech deal and solve with that? No, it is a good point because it's like. I know for some people, like where someone went to school and stuff like that matters. But I know like from being in like the journalism industry, it seems like that hasn't mattered. I remember I like went to a job interview once and she was like, where did you go to school? And I was like, Emerson, you know, like pretty good journalism program. She was like, never heard of it. I was like, OK, cool. <laughs> like, I feel like some industries it like doesn't really matter. And then I guess this is like if people in tech are talking about this, maybe it matters more in tech than it probably should. I know. Um, now I, I, I'm probably going to keep tabs on what the conversation is because mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, we're going to see. We're going to see. I know. And at least like as companies adopt stuff like this, like we'll at least be able to see the data if that does start to affect it, which is like, oh, hopefully that doesn't happen. But I don't know. We'll at least have the tools to know if it's happening so people can try to like stop the practice. Oh, and speaking of data... I was another thing I wish that we went into was talking more about her work in the EU, because I know that countries like, you know, France, it's like impossible to get data, mm -hmm. on, especially regarding race. So she kind of didn't give us too much about that, you know, just saying, you know, I'm a lawyer and I have all the connections. But I do know that like I wanted to know a lot more about that because I know that it's difficult and hard. 
And I know that there have been calls now, especially in France, for there to be more tracking of the race problems that are going on. And so I would have loved more insight in terms of how she's gotten around that, probably. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's sort of like um, just like a cultural difference in like the self-identification piece. Like I have no idea, but maybe people there are like more willing to fill out like self-identifying information like that than people here. No. Just with, I don't know. No. Just food for thought. Probably not, but. <laughs> the rumors are saying no. <laughs> oh my gosh, no. I mean, but maybe, maybe. But that's that's interesting. Because I, I want to know, like, what is it like having um, a European company kind of use this? And what are their reactions to the topics of DEI compared to the American lens of it all? And who's kind of more opening and welcoming of um, different people. Ooh, I would have mm -hmm. loved that analysis. Mm. Well, I guess we'll have to have her back on the show for like an update. We'll be like, actually, we'd like you to prepare this report <laughs> before you come on. We've been, we've had some questions. I have a thesis, <laughs> yes. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Becca Skuta, alongside senior reporter, Dominic Midori Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>